0: WDBM East Lansing. Hello and welcome to Exposure on Impact 89FM, the show where we talk to members of organizations at Michigan State University and nonprofit organizations in the East Lansing area. We strive to promote diversity, freedom of expression, and resources to MSU students. I am your host Michael Swadis, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dennis Martel. and he is an expert in student health issues. He counsels students on some of the most important issues of college life, stress, sex and pregnancy prevention, alcohol and tobacco use, and mental health and nutrition. Thank you so much for being here, Dennis. And please feel free to introduce yourself and elaborate a little bit more on what you do at MSU.
1: It's a pleasure to be here with you, Michael. I um, I've been on campus now for 34 years. I started as a, a grad student uh, in a, uh, a master's PhD program in '85, and uh, decided to be a Spartan for the rest of my life. You know, so uh, my title is Health Promotion Director. Uh, I am also the executive director of the National Social Norms Center and the uh, uh, director of the celebrations uh, committee and the sportsmanship. And that's a long title, but it means that uh, we're busy trying to make the environment conducive for students to uh, uh, be healthy. And let me just start with that, Michael, real quickly. You know, I, when people hear about health education departments or health promotion departments, they go, what is that? You know, and, and I just like to always clarify with people my definition of health. Because people, you know, when I, I did a class for many years called Go to Health, you know, and it was about people coming in, students coming <laughs> in, and the first session we'd always do would be about what is health? And why do you need it? And so people come up with all kinds of definitions of health. Health is, you know, eating three to five vegetables a day or doing you know, push-ups or making sure you're not stressed. My definition of health is the capacity that you have at any given moment to be in this world, to connect with this world, and to give back. So health is a measure of capacity, which is That ability to see, experience, it's about capacity. It's not about your biological markers. It's not about your, you know, your stress test or anything like that because it's your capacity. Because think about it. When you have, let's say, the flu, do you feel like you have the capacity to get off the couch and do the things necessary? No. Or when you have depression, do you really feel like you have the capacity or the freedom to get off the couch and do the things you normally do? No. Health is about capacity. And if you think about that, that... that, helps to define what our department is. Because we're a, we're a capacity promotion department. So we have various different uh, groups uh, in the health promotion department. And like you said, uh, I, I always cringe at the word expert because uh, people call themselves experts sometimes and they really don't even know what health is. You know, Because I'll ask people what health is and they'll say, well, all my biological markers are right up there. Yeah, you may not be able to uh, answer a question about life, liberty, and happiness, but all your biological markers up there. You know, sometimes we think about people who we say, how could this person have a heart attack? Is always running. They're in the best physical shape. Well, no. Health is about your capacity. Okay, so our Health Promotion Department, which is in student affairs now, is still part of this new reorganization called Student Health and Wellness, uh, which we're all trying to still figure out. But we've been here for a long time, and I've been with the Health Promotion Department now since 93. And so uh, our department really does, promotes, and tries to support the capacity of you guys, of students, undergrads, grads, to uh, be academically successful and socially successful. So we do a lot of research. We do a lot of research about your health, and we're tracking like 40 different health concepts and see how they impact your academics. Like if you use alcohol, we try to see how that impacts your academics. If you get a sinus infection, we try to see how that. So really briefly, we do a lot of research. We do a lot of educational interventions, which is kind of a code word for counseling. Because we do HIV counseling, we do uh, nutrition counseling, we do sexuality counseling, we do substance abuse counseling, uh, we do all kinds of counseling, educational intervention, uh, and then we do a lot of what we call social norming. We take the facts that you give us, like if you say 80% of MSU students uh, watch out for others when they're out drinking, or they try to plan for a safe ride home, uh, we take that information and we feed it back to you because our our philosophy is we don't tell you what to do. We just tell you what you do because a lot of misperceptions abound when freshmen come on campus. They think everybody's having sex, everybody's drinking, everybody's doing this, and it's not true. So we try to clear up the misperceptions so that people know what the norm is because most students on this campus really want to be successful. Yeah, Nobody wants to be hurt by alcohol or anything else. So we try to do that stuff. So in a nutshell, we just try to look at the capacity that you have, try to help support it, and try to reinforce it. And that's we have a myriad of services.
0: That's amazing. And I think that's like the first time I've ever heard health be defined like that. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. When I first heard of health, or, you know, when I first heard of health, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like... It's going to be a little bit dragging, probably, because I don't know nothing about nutrition and sure. what are we going to talk about. But I think that when you make it a fun like that and interesting, I think students gravitate towards that. And the way that you defined that was just so interesting because I'm like, okay, that's so true. I never really thought about it that way. And I'm glad that you guys are now on the second floor because I have attended. You all come out to us, right? Most of the time, right? you all go to different yeah. Uh, like organizations because that's where I've seen you all mostly Absolutely. Uh, do presenting and it's just so interactive and it's just always so interesting and I never know what to expect, <laughs> but I think that was what I've learned is that I want to step out of my comfort zone and, yeah, I hear the word health and um, wellness, but what does that really like mean to me, <laughs> right? And then you all have just been doing a really good job with that.
1: Well, we, we, our mission really is to engage, to do outreach, and to do research. So we, we reach out to people, and it's all about engagement, Michael. You're right. Now, let, let me throw another one at you because, you know, being this is a podcast and parents and, and everyone out there listening to this, I mean, you're doing a great service in doing this. Tell me what you think the meaning of health is. I mean, I, I ask med students this. I've asked this for 30, the meaning of health. And, and I usually get, Michael, I get this, these answers like, well— I I can run two miles or the meaning of health is I eat my three to five vegetables a day. Think about it. The meaning of health to me is freedom. Because when you have capacity, you have the freedom to do the things you, you want to do in life. You have the freedom to give back to the world. Because think about it for a minute. And I, I always challenge parents on this. The two concepts in this culture that we take for granted, but fight like heck to get them back, are freedom and health. We don't understand either one of them until we lose them. And then when we lose them, we fight like heck to get them back. So, health is all the meaning of health is freedom. When you have capacity, you have that freedom. Once again, if you have depression, you really feel free to get up and do the things you want to do. Or when you have a cold or a flu or an STI, do you really feel free? You can overcome that stuff. But health and the meaning of health is so important. But we take it for granted. You know, I have friends who who have lost the health and gotten cancer. uh, And and, uh, they always say, it's not the cancer that got me. It's my relationship with the cancer. It's feeling about even one of the healthiest people I know, Michael, is a person who used to skydive with me. And he didn't make it all the way down one time and he lost the ability uh, to walk. He's one of the healthiest people I know because now within his framework, now that he knows he doesn't have the ability, he knows within his framework what he has the capacity to do. Even though he's lost an ability, he's now healthier than most people because he knows I can do this, this and this because he's explored all the other capacities he's had. So one of the great things about doing health promotion or health education or even a podcast like this is what you said. It's reframing what health is. Even if you have a disability, even if you have this, that, or the other thing, you can be healthy. That's why we look at nutrition. Let's take nutrition very quickly. We, we have declared war on the war on obesity. We don't even like to talk about obesity because obesity causes more problems Thinking about obesity causes more problems than obesity does. We believe in health at any size. You can have health at any size. Even if you're so-called overweight or BMI, I mean, everybody knows what BMI is. My definition of BMI is basically made up index. It means nothing, okay? We, We look at it as you can have health at any size. You can have health with any ability. You can have health with any orientation, with anything. You can have that capacity. So that's what's why it's important when we talk to parents. And, and I know that the Student Affairs Office is really high on this too. Talk to parents is that we want parents to be able to support their students by talking with them about their capacities, not just about, you know, what, what, what did you get on your score today, or did you run today, or did you do this? No how do you feel today? How do you feel about your capacity? So it's important for us to reframe that for people. And I'll tell you, med students are the worst, Michael. You know, I ask them what health is and they go, well, it's your temperature is 98.9. And you're like, no, that's not it.
0: That is so interesting. You, I'm just so mind blown right now because you just, you took it to like a whole nother level. And it, the I was thinking about someone that's sick. Like there are some people that deal with it. They're like, well, this is what it is. And it's and then they know how to deal with it, but because their mental is good, right? Their mental state of and they're like, you know, I have enjoyed life and if this is what it is, this is what is what it is. And then sometimes other people or families they get they get this bad news and they're it's just the world is just crashing on them and they don't know how to handle it. So you have to have that balance. So I guess how do you maintain the balance, but then how do you teach that to the students here at MSU when they're probably stubborn and naive and they think they're invincible and they're so young and they feel like they have their whole life ahead of them, which they do. But I just started getting into the health thing. And I I understood I can go work out and I can be fit. But if my mental is not right, there's just a huge imbalance.
1: But well, think about this, Michael, the, the, the definition that I use, and it only works for me. I don't say other people need to have it. When you think about the meaning of health being freedom, okay, Anything that restricts you is not, in my view, healthy. Anything that frees you is healthy. So if you feel like you want to be healthy, but you have to go to the gym three to five hours a day, you have to do that, or you have to do this. Whenever you have to do this, even if it looks like in society it's a healthy thing to do, like I have to have my five vegetables a day and my eight glasses of water, if you stick to that, That restricts you from doing the things you want to do. So some of the healthy things we think are out there uh, aren't really healthy. I know people who are depressed as all heck, but they go to the gym five hours a day because they have to, because their body has to be there. But their mind is restricted, which doesn't make it healthy. How do you find that balance? One of the things I always tell parents, which is uh, when I go out and talk to parents about coming to MSU and what you need to do, is make sure... That when you talk to your student, you ask them, uh, "What did you do today to increase your capacity to be successful?" Now they don't have to say in those words, but they can say it in a way that uh, I always tell parents to tell to, to think about taking your kid back to high school, not literally, but in a sense, because if they're they're going to be stressed and they're going to have anxiety. Anxiety is through the roof nowadays in research and looking at students, but. What happens with a lot of freshmen when they come here is they go brain dead for six weeks. You know, we, we have September, which is what we call brain dead week or month. And then we have October, which is hate your roommate month. Now, we have all these months where we know the career of the student. But that first month is important because they got, why I say take them back to high school is because they got this far because they had some coping mechanisms. Whether it's, uh, whether it is running or prayer or music or something like that. But they get here, they forget those coping mechanisms. So I tell parents, tell your student, did you uh, remember John? He used to like to play guitar. You still playing? Well, I don't have time. Well, why not? You know, Bring them back to those coping mechanisms that got them this far because they do go brain dead. Mm-hmm. They just go like, oh, I got to do this. And, and also bring them back to the, the, the most important concept to stay and, and grow your capacity is sleep one of the most unsexy topics there is but parents don't want it cuz even when I talk to parents I'll ask the parents how many of you in the audience today got 8 hours of sleep 3 or 4 you know so so finding that balance is bringing them back to the coping mechanisms telling them the other thing is this isn't this isn't life and death college isn't life and death it's a huge transition but it's not going to frame the rest of your life honestly Most people aren't going to care where you graduated from. They're going to care about your capacity to engage. They're going to care about your capacity to laugh. They're going to care about your capacity to help them uh, grow their business or do stuff. That's what they're going to care about. They're not going to necessarily care about that you got an A- in literature. They're just not.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I think that we come into college, and right now I'm a graduate student. Mm -hmm. It was just two years ago that I graduated with my undergrad degree And I was nervous, and there was a huge culture shock when I came to MSU. And I'm like, how am I going to be able to navigate through college, but then also exposure to parties, to drugs, to sex, to stress? How real is that? Like, I know that you have a lot of data and you interact with a lot of students. How real and how distracting or how much of an impact does that have on a student's experience when they're here at MSU.
1: And we have resources for all those. All those resources are online. We have nutrition, we have all that stuff. But you have to understand what the norms are. You know, when they come here, we used to ask freshmen in in, uh, the new student orientation, say, how many drinks do you think the average MSU student has when they go out? And they go 8 to 10, you know, and if you're from the UP, it was 15. You know, Well, it's 0 to 4. Or what does the average MSU student have for sexual partners? It's like 10 or more or 11. Well, no, it's actually one or less. 75% of our students are monogamous in their relationships, and 30% don't even have sexual activity. That's not my job to tell people to have sex or not to have sex. It's my job to give them the facts. And if they do decide to have sex, all the protective behaviors. We have all that. We can supply you with condoms. We can supply you with... Birth control methods—all those resources are here. But what students can do, and I know Student Affairs does a good job in that too, is equip the students with the right information, the data. That's why we do research uh, is so important. I want you to know that uh, on any given week, seventy percent of MSU students don't drink, and that thirty percent now are actually abstinent. They don't don't even choose to drink. <laughs> You know, you get these party school things, and MSU. Well, MSU hasn't been on the party list for ages now, and it's because we're giving them the right facts about what really happens. You know, and that's what you need to do. You just, you know, they come in with all these misperceptions about sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, everything. They they come in, and it's like, no, give them the correct information. Don't tell them what to do. Tell them what the norm does. And let them make the decision. But be there to protect them. I always said with new student orientation and with parents, I don't care if they remember anything other than I'm engageable. I am a, 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 a trusted person. I always tell parents, if you don't get an answer from anybody at MSU, you call me. And I put my number up there, and they call me. They'll call me in the middle of the semester and say, my Johnny can't get uh, you know, a new roommate because he hates his roommate. Can you help me at least get to a person, or my daughter has an eating disorder, you know, can you get some counseling for us? Because going back to, really quickly, that that thing on obesity, we have a, a an epidemic in young women who are coming into our, our counseling, to our health promotion department, who have disordered eating or eating disorder because they believe they have to look this image. They don't eat, they stop eating, and all this talk about body image and about... Uh, obesity has caused that we have caused that we need to let these people know there's no such thing as a freshman 15 it's called development you put on some weight you lose some weight some people gain a little bit more some people lose it so it's giving the right information and i think podcasts like this is the right way to go it's let people know the facts
0: that's absolutely true and correct and just being around the environment i know that's how true it is i've lived it i've experienced it i've been in situations and it is so real and a lot of it has to do because of our social media and what's on tv and our commercials and I understand all of that so that's why I agree I think that the work that we're doing here is just so important because you have the actual data you are presenting facts you are presenting experiences that actually happen you know at MSU and giving people the facts and Mm -hmm. I think that's what's important and I guess that's going into, like, why do you think that your resource, you know, the resources that you're offering are so important on an MSU campus?
1: Oh, they're, they're, first of all, it's it's portraying yourself as engageable. And if people know you're engageable and you're a, I call an askable parent or an askable uh, uh, administrator, they'll come to you. We have a program called Spartan Fit, okay? It's a program that cost them easily twenty dollars it, it's it's a program outside of here would be six to hundred to a thousand dollars well we can take you in as a freshman evaluate everything about your your uh, dynamics uh, your, your your physical health your mental health stuff do it all we do all these tests v, uh, vmax uh, strength and dirt we can do all that and we can follow you along uh, through your whole career for basically nothing and then help you support you. We also have a program that called Wellness Coaching. You can come in and and, uh, set up an appointment with a wellness coach for no money at all. Most of our services are free. Almost all our services are free. Free confidential, uh, free anonymous HIV testing, free nutrition testing, free substance abuse. Those things are the uh, the services that are necessary. Yeah, you have financial aid and you have stuff. But if you don't have on a campus resources to support their capacity... And that's why I keep using that word, the capacity to be successful, then uh, you're not going to support them. Because you yourself said it's a big transition coming from Texas, coming up here to MSU, 50 some thousand students, different colleges. You got to find an anchor. You got to find somebody who's going to care about you. Everybody wants that. We know that you're successful in our research. We ask, do you feel like MSU cares about you? You feel like a connection we know that students who feel connected to msu are going to be more successful because they feel like they can find the resources and i, I will tell your parents or anybody listening once again you can't find answers you call me you call me i'll give you my number 432-1031 you can't find an answer to something you call me that's what parents want to know that's what students want to know is i just need to talk to somebody yeah,
0: accessibility is what's so important and we, that's what we're trying to do, and I've worked with students, and they always do feel that I don't think MSU is paying attention. I don't think MSU is. I'm like, you also have not been probably presented with the resources that you need to be successful, right? And I Absolutely. think this is why we're doing this. is to tell you all, there is resources out there. We have the student services building, and there's just so much there from career development to health and wellness to just – being immersed with different cultures and understanding the diversity that's here on campus. So thank you so much for just sharing all of that. Is there anything else that you think would be important for our listeners to hear today?
1: Michael, I want you to share this podcast with every incoming student and parent, not because I'm speaking, but because the information that you got out of me is important for them to know, to know about what health is, to know that there's resources, and to know there are people who care. So if anything... You get this podcast, everyone, That's and thank awesome. you.
0: Awesome, so Thank you so much, Dennis, for being here. Remember that you can find. Remember that you can find Dennis Martell in the Student Services Building on the second floor, and he's going to give you his number one more time because he's going to be super accessible to any of you all who have any questions.
1: Four three two one zero three one Martell one at msu.edu. You call me; I will get you what you need.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dennis.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: And there you have it. Another episode of Exposure in the Books. If you missed anything, feel free to check out our website at impact89fm.org, where you can find our weekly Exposure podcast. Also, if you would like to come visit us and talk about your respected organization at MSU or a nonprofit organization in the East Lansing area, please feel free to contact us, again, on our website at impact89fm.org. And don't forget to connect with us on social media for current news and updates happening in our community. Just search for Impact 89FM. Thanks for listening.
2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Sci-Files. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Budum
3: and Daniel Puentes.
2: Today we have special guest Diana Cowern.
3: Diana Cowern is a science communicator and educator. She is the content creator for her YouTube channel, Physics Girl, with PBS Digital Studios, which has over 1 million subscribers.
2: Today we're joined by Diana Cowern. Diana, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a science
4: communicator. I grew up in Hawaii, if you want to start that far back. Um, <laughs> and then I, I went on and studied physics um, in Boston at MIT and sort of had no idea what I wanted to do. A lot of my friends were like, I'm going to go design iPhones at Apple. Like they knew that's their number one priority, their number one goal. And I had no idea, but I did always have a bit of a passion for communicating science, getting other people excited about science, and so with that job careers in the back of my mind, I slowly worked my way toward becoming a YouTuber, which is not at all what I thought I would end up doing as a job, but it's been a really, really fun, interesting, and modern job with a lot of ups and downs and changes. So it's been fun.
3: Great, and what does it mean to do science communication in the first place?
4: Um, I think that, I think that's really changed over the years. Um, You know, I think Carl Sagan was one of the trailblazers as far as science communication goes. And he had, he obviously had a very popular TV show called Cosmos, which I was a big fan of. Um, And he really brought the wonder of science to the general public. He sort of, sort of introduced this idea of Getting excited about science, getting interested in science from the beauty and in the intriguingness of science, rather than you know the hard equations and this is this is the application, this is what you use it for. You really show the beauty of science. So, um, so I think that's one thing that science communicators do is they just get people excited and interested in science, and then from there. You know they bridge the divide between scientists who tend to do their science in a lab uh, by themselves communicating among their peers and the general public who don't necessarily have uh, the the words the the vocabulary to understand some of these concepts so science communicators help to tr- translate in a way and um, and teach the general public or or introduce the general public to some interesting ideas in science um, across the the different areas of science in, um, you know, in physics and chemistry and medical fields, um, even in engineering.
2: When did you feel like you became a science communicator? Was it when you were at MIT before or after? Yeah,
4: I did not feel like a science communicator for a while, even while making videos, because I sort of just felt like, I was doing this for fun, and I liked it. But I think, I think I really felt like a science communicator when people started. I think, I think when people started inviting me to talk about science communication, just sort of you know random conferences or at universities, like come talk to our students, our science students, about science communication and the importance of it. And I was like, so, me? Why? <laughs> Why do you want me to talk about it? Um, and it was just, I think that you know. I I I had taken a couple classes in science communication I didn't have a degree in it I had a degree in science but I think it's one of those things where you know you practice enough and you do it enough and you really can learn the skills of science communication even without maybe a formal um education or formal training in science communication
3: so whenever you're making these videos what provides the inspiration that helps you come up with the different ideas that you do for your YouTube channel
4: It's honestly a tricky question to answer because it's always so different for every single video. Um, It could be anything from um, a a little trick that I remembered this kid did in, um, in my class when I was in middle school. I remember this is an actual video that I made um, this this uh one of my friends in sixth grade made a cloud come out of his mouth and I was like how, how he just like sort of clicked his tongue a little bit and made this cloud come out. I was like how did he do that um and I remembered this 10 years later and looked it up and it was a real thing and I was like oh there's actually science behind this so that became a video. So remembering something from childhood, um, sometimes it's, it's ideas that people send me, like they'll send me, you know, I noticed this phenomenon when I was drinking my coffee this morning. What is it? Or I'll notice a phenomenon like singing into a tube recently wanting to find the resonant frequency. I noticed this weird phenomenon about how the frequency pushes back on your vocal cords. And then sometimes it's it's you know things that I had learned in school, like those mind blowing moments when you're going through your classes and you're like, oh my god, I had no idea that black holes could evaporate, or I had I had no idea that um, that there are all these different kinds of stars. I took I had a lot of mind blowing moments in um, in astronomy class, so a lot of a lot of those videos came from classes that I had taken getting my physics degree. So it's really, I mean, it's, it's anywhere. I think that that really speaks to the fact that physics is everywhere in our lives, that the ideas could come from anywhere and anybody.
2: When you're making your YouTube videos, what do you think are the best practices for making them? Do people like more whenever you're on the camera or when there's demos being shown? you know, that's, that's something that I've gone back and
4: forth on a lot. I think, um, I made a video that was just demos. It was like five fun physics experiments. And that was, I think the only video where I didn't show my face and my audience got really angry. They were like, this is not what we come to your channel for. The only thing that sets it apart is that you're in it. And I was like, what? I had no, I, no idea that my audience really liked you know, seeing me in the videos, because I think a lot of the focus had been on the science. So I think that it it really is a mix. And I think that, you know, people don't like change. <laughs> so that's one thing. So the the constant was the fact that I was in every video. And there I think that there's something to be said for showing a person, showing somebody who's really excited about science and who um, you can connect with, and you, like their enthusiasm comes across, um, so I think in that way, being in the videos um, helps to connect with my audience but But I think in other times, the video format really lends itself to beautiful experiments and interesting experiments, and even imagery as if it 's something about uh, galaxies. Or um, or space or something like that. Like there's just amazing, beautiful imagery, anyways that you can use. So that is always nice to look at when you're watching a video. With the demonstrations, I think that I think what I really like there is that. People can see how things are done. They can see where science would apply in their everyday lives. And then sometimes if it's a demonstration that's like, you can do this at home, DIY, all the materials are found in your kitchen. Then I think people can really connect with seeing the science as something that they could relate to and could reproduce at home with their kids, with their friends. Um, And I think that 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 connects to the audience in a different way than just seeing somebody talk about it.
3: You mentioned earlier that you perform these different types of experiments, in your videos. During your time at MIT, what kind of experiments were you interested in working on or what did you work on during your time?
4: So so when I was at MIT, um, as an undergraduate, I did this program called the Undergrad Research Opportunity, the UROP, um, where undergrads got to actually do research working with professors or postdocs. And I worked with Jocelyn Monroe in um, one of the particle physics labs. So she was working on a dark matter experiment. And this was specifically trying to, um, it was it sort of in collaboration with a dark matter detector. Like the, the idea was this particle detector is looking for particles that could potentially be dark matter. Cause you know, we've never seen dark matter. We've never actually detected it. We just indirectly know that it's there. And this experiment we were working on was looking at categorizing the number of neutrons, just coming from the atmosphere, coming from outer space, and figuring out that the level of neutrons so you can subtract those out and be like, okay, if you detect this number of particles, we can subtract out this many as neutrons and then this many as other particles, but nobody had ever categorized the neutron flux, as we call it. Um, so that's what we were working on de- on um, detecting. We're working on that neutron detector. Um, so <laughs> an experiment in the physics department is very, very different than an experiment trying to get people interested in science. <laughs> because the day-to-day really is like, oh, our electronics are not working. I have to program this thing. We have to sit up, we have to wait all night. To get some runs and get some data and then (laughs) work on that and uh and i i I remember thinking it's really hard to get people interested in your research when what you do is sit in a lab and, and look at a computer and i really wanted to share even back then i really wanted to share my passion for physics with my parents or with my friends um and so Doing little experiments in science communication, I think it was a way of bridging that gap between like, no, I love the research I'm doing, but it's really hard to get you excited about it and show you what I'm really doing because it's only this this one thing, and it takes a very long time.
2: Some of our listeners on Impact 89FM might not know what is dark matter. Would you mind defining what is dark matter, please?
4: I would love to be able to define what dark matter is, but we don't actually know what it is. Um, we just know that about, I think it's 85%. I always get the numbers mixed up because they co- often combine dark matter and dark energy. Essentially, all of the matter and energy in the universe, um, if you break that down into different categories, the, the the baryonic matter, which is the stuff we know of, only makes up 4% of the matter and energy in the universe. And the rest of it is what we know as dark matter and dark energy, which are essentially just names for dark things that we don't know yet what they are, what makes them up. And we're looking for exactly what dark matter is. And we know it's there because we see it do things like bend lights around galaxies. We see it do things like, like make galaxies form into spiral shapes in a way that they wouldn't otherwise given the amount of mass that we can actually see. But that tells us there's matter there we cannot see, which ends which we call dark matter. It's a very creative name. you can't see it. hence it's dark matter. Um, and so now, so scientists are right now looking for different ways to detect dark matter. they're looking for them as particles, they're looking for them as uh, primordial black holes, potentially, like all, all these different things that they could potentially be. they're just looking for ways of directly detecting them. but we don't know, we don't know what it is yet, so we we don't exactly know what dark matter is.
3: <laughs> That's really awesome. And then has there been any other types of research that you've been involved with since you graduated from MIT?
4: Yeah, so, so right after I graduated, I actually um, took a, a bit of time. I thought that I was going to go to grad school in physics. And so I, I looked around for what's called a post-baccalaureate research position, which is just like means after you get your bachelor's degree, someone takes you on to do some research. And I did that at Harvard with Anna Frible. Um, And she was studying low metallicity stars. Um, Basically, she was looking for the oldest stars in the universe. um, And she was doing that by looking for stars that have low amounts of heavy metals. Because the idea is that, you know, as time goes on, the universe goes on. Things like supernovas happen and they explode and they create these really heavy metals. And stars start to fuse heavy metals. So the later stars that form from these exploded supernovas and and from uh, from other bits of stars that created heavier metals will have those those later generations of stars will have heavier metals, but the earlier generations will only have hydrogen and helium and the stuff that was around in the very, very early universe. So these super old stars, you know, they could even be around close to us. They're not necessarily super far away. They might just be like very slow burning stars. Um, that are obviously billions of years old. Um, we're just looking for those stars and to categorize them, see how many they are, there are, and so forth. Which is it was really fun. But I I moved on to software engineering and then eventually science communication from that.
3: So with all of this research experience that you've gained throughout the years, what helped you transition into the field of science communication in the first place? What helps? you get into making YouTube videos?
4: That's a tough question, because I, I feel like it was not, I didn't feel like I had the skills to be a science communicator, and I, I think over time, um, I, I, I really think that just practicing was the best way to get better at science communication. Like anything, it's one of those skills where you, you're not necessarily just naturally good at communicating. And I thought, I thought you were. I thought that you either were a good communicator, or a good talker, you could speak clearly and speak well, or you couldn't. Uh, but like anything, it just takes a lot of practice. And I think over the course of creating close to 150 videos now, or something like that, I've definitely gotten better. And I'm I'm constantly learning new techniques and ways of storytelling, and also also just learning things like. Like a lot of science communicators have talked about the things that they're communicating over and over, so they've gotten to practice. They're not just naturally like, they can't pick any topic and just immediately talk about it necessarily and, and be really clear and concise. There's a, there's often a lot of practice that goes into it and it's good to know that. It you know sort of gives you a little more confidence to be like, well, I could practice, I can do that.
3: Since you're reaching close to 150 videos, out of all of them, which one have you found was the most fun to work on uh, with the rest of your crew
4: oh they they 've all been so different because some of them are like little experiments I do in my in my kitchen or my studio, and some of them are getting to go visit CERN, which we 're working on right now but i think I think of the recent videos, my favorite one has been um, Going to LIGO where they first discovered gravitational waves. We got to go to the the lab. We got to talk to, you know, some of the scientists working on the initial observation of gravitational waves and this incredible facility. We got to talk to people who were really, really knowledgeable about gravitational waves and about the facility and all the instrumentation, but also who had such a passion for it, which which was so fun to see. I think that often I'm by myself in my studio getting excited about science, and it's really, really nice to be around other people who are so excited. We created two videos out of that, one which was just sort of telling the story of what what excited us most, or excited me most, and interested me most about gravitational waves, and another was just a long-form interview asking the head of that, of of LIGO Hanford um, Observatory, just... Tons of questions about whatever, about what is the speed of gravity? What have you learned from gravitational waves? And just getting to sit with him for half an hour and ask him all of my questions. And I loved that because I think that that's one of the most fun parts of this job is getting to be curious and getting to continue learning. So that one was a lot of, a lot of fun to work on.
3: Well, I'm glad you were able to have that opportunity to visit an international collaborating uh, facility such as LIGO like that. And it's going to be really great that you're going to be able to come now this upcoming week to the facility for isotope beams. Uh, Like I had mentioned in a previous conversation, facility for isotope beams, also known as EFRAB, it's going to be the world's most powerful nuclear accelerator ever built and used in history.
4: That is that is so exciting. I feel like I feel like that's that's one of the, the luckiest things about my job is getting to go to these incredible places meet these amazing scientists and and get excited with them about what they're doing. I, the, the, the great thing about a lot of these observatories like LIGO and, and CERN is that they're often open to the general public. So so, not just YouTubers can go. A lot of people can go if they happen to be in the area. I mean, you do have to be in Hanford, Washington, which is in the middle of nowhere, or in Switzerland, also kind of far for a lot of people. But, um, but a lot of a lot of laboratories are open to the general public, which is great.
3: Yeah, just like the uh, effort over here. Right before it ever actually goes online, we have the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory here set up that is also open to the public and always engages with the local community in different events, whether it's through high school, summer camps, to open houses, it all depends, but it, I that agree. That
2: is fantastic.
4: Yeah, that's wonderful to hear, that is, that is great. I think it's really important. I think it's really important for people to get in there and to see the science and meet the scientists. That's really, really cool.
2: Yeah, like you both are saying, it's really great for the public to engage with science, which is why we're having that large event that you're gonna be speaking at, So on October 19th, the public can come to the facility for isotope beans and see a large science art exhibit outside of the auditorium. So people from the community of MSU and from the Lansing East Lansing community came together to create these art pieces. So there were scientists and artists working together to create these wonderful depictions of science through art. And then we're gonna have your show at the Wharton Center talking about science and art and we'll have science demos as well. I was wondering, what really got you into science art like do you have a specific thing that really made you motivated towards science art and towards making youtube videos you know i always
4: um i could never decide what i wanted to do when i was younger because i loved sort of everything (laughs) i loved science and math but i also really loved music and I, i i did like some a lot of photography classes um, I did a lot of painting. So I think, I think that I always had an interest in both. And I really think that um, especially music and science go hand in hand. Um, and I, I think that one thing that drew me to video so strongly was the ability to show really interesting looking and really beautiful parts of science. I, I love making videos on fluid dynamics specifically because some of the phenomena you get are just so intricate and so beautiful and, and just mind blowing in a visual way. So I think that, um, I think just that interest from, from when I was a kid in both science and art drew me to connecting them together to create science media. I, I, think, I think that's probably why.
3: Well, thank you so much, Diana, for joining us today for this interview. It really means a lot to us, and we're really excited to get to getting to see you again this next Saturday for the Science Art Exhibition. For any of our listeners uh, tuning in, you can pick up tickets at, for the Science Art Show uh, hosting Diana at the Warden Center, or you can call in and reserve ahead of time. And if you have any questions, uh, please uh, let either Chelsea or I know.
2: Yeah, tickets are free, and you can also pick up a few tickets at the Impact 89 FM station. So if you want, you can call into Impact and maybe pick up some tickets over there. Thanks, Diana.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for having you guys. I'm really, I'm really excited for the event, and I hope to see everyone there.
3: Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.